The JMF Advisors Show is a podcast for business owners, C-suite executives, and entrepreneurs who are looking to build, grow, or even exit a business. We bring in some of our best financial advisors to interview experts on business best practices, hot topics, and sprinkle in some tax and accounting help. If you're a business owner, startup founder, CFO, or just starting your side hustle, this podcast is for you. Okay, welcome to another episode of JMF Advisors Podcast. Today we will be discussing the Federal Research and Development, or R&D Tax Credit. I'm Carl Jamison, and uh, joining me today is Rachel Taylor, a shareholder at JMF and uh, co-manager of JMF's tax department. And via Zoom, we have Tyler Noser uh, with the Alliant Group out of Houston. Thanks to both of you for being here today. Yeah. A little yeah. bit about the Alliant Group uh, from our perspective. You know, they're the nation's premier consulting and management uh, engineering firm helping businesses identify and leverage federal uh, and state incentives related to R&D credits, uh, 179D deductions, uh, ERC credits, et cetera. Uh, but they also provide cybersecurity services, talent services, and tax advisory services. And we've been working with the Alliant Group since 2011. I think we've done jointly, I say jointly, y'all have done for our clients over <laughs> 75 uh, studies uh, resulting in over $8.6 million in credits for JMF clients. Uh, we've also, our firm has used their talent services group uh, and their tax advisory services related to tax controversies. So RD credits have been around for a long time, I think, uh, in a per, uh, response to a perceived economic slowdown uh, and job outsourcing, uh, the credit was enacted back in 1981. Uh, right. Right. And it was really developed to reward uh, American businesses for keeping those technical jobs onshore, so to speak, uh, and creating new to the world products. Uh, and that kind of limited who was, uh, who could take advantage of the credit. And I, I think of the lab coats and the scientists and the beakers and all that stuff. <laughs> right. right? Exactly. Uh, which we, we don't have a whole lot of those in, in our practice. But in 2003, final regulations were uh, issued eliminating the new to the world and, and replaced it with a new to the taxpayer, which obviously opened up a lot more uh, companies uh, and lowered the threshold. So a lot more companies could take advantage of it. And then in 2006, the alternative simplified credit was enacted, which provided additional flexibility on how you calculated the credit, uh, which just helped even more. And then, uh, Tyler, we were talking earlier in 2016, used to be subject to alternative minimum tax, but that went away in 2016. So it's just been progressed. Oh, and they made it permanent. When did they do that, yep. Tyler? Uh, that was the same the same act as the uh, the Altman elimination. Okay. So the PATH Act also made it permanent, and it also created the uh, the startup provision, which was now one of the more recent updates with the inflation bill. Um, there was another update to uh, the startup provision as well. So the last you know three, four, five iterations of the credit have been since 2016, 2018, and then now most recently 2022. Yeah, which have been great because they would. They would put the bill in and it would be in for two years and then it was going to go away and then it had to have to put it back in. Right. So anyway, making it permanent was uh, was a big help to a lot of us. So, you know, when we first got started, Tyler, all the costs, and you, you, you'll go into this, but all the costs that were associated with those costs eligible 
for the credit were mostly wages because those are the typical. You have some subcontractors you'll get into, uh, but it was mainly those expenditures for a new or improved product or new and improved process to the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. So kind of tell us about the R&D credit, what it is, how it works, uh, those type things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, Carl, thank you guys. And thank you both for, for having me on. I, I think um, you know, when we talk about the R&D tax credit, it, it certainly is well, it's one of the most complicated pieces of the tax code, and it's it's evolved so many times. And when we talk about all these changes, right? You, you guys were going through some of the different iterations and adjustments. That just scratches the surface of of all the different uh, ways that this thing has evolved through the years. Because, like you said, Carl, I mean, it started in 1981 with the Economic Recovery Act. It was the Reagan administration. At the time, you talk about the perceived recession. Also, the the thing that really spurred this, if you go look at congressional notes. You had Toyota and Honda coming over and starting to compete with Ford and GM for the first time, right? This yeah. was really, this was an effort to encourage growth of domestic businesses, particularly as you start looking at a global economy. The whole purpose of this from the beginning has been encouraging growth in U.S. companies and supporting that type of work with U.S. businesses. Now, when you talk about the adjustment that happened in 2003, the proposed regs started in 2001, were finally codified in 03. But basically what it was, was, Congress wrote this incentive back in 81, thinking about Ford and GM, right? Because that's who the focus was. Well, when you write an incentive based on two you know, super companies, Fortune 500s, it makes sense to make the standard patents. It makes sense to say that you have to have something new to the world because those companies have true research teams trying yep. to come up with new to the world innovations. The problem, though, is that when the goal of this was technical jobs, like you said, Small to mid-sized businesses are the job growth sector of the economy. And so if you really want to try and create good, high-paying technical jobs here stateside, and you want to create incentives that's going to encourage growth of those, putting a patent standard in place, which you know leads lends itself more towards large corporations claiming versus small businesses, didn't really hit the mark. And so in the early 2000s, that was when this started to get identified, right? And in 2001, there were proposed regulations that, like you said, got rid of the patent standard and moved it to this idea of new or improved to you as a taxpayer. It was finally codified in 03. Uh, and the benefit of that is that now you're looking at things like site-specific, modified, application-focused, customer specification-driven. If you have some type of technical problem-solving approach, so you're taking on a job-by-job and a day-by-day basis, that type of analytical uh, work that your employees are doing is absolutely where the focus of this is. Because once again, if there are technical problems that are being encountered and solutions are being derived by your business, that generally means the people you have working on those types of problems are probably not your minimum wage employees, right? Those are generally going to be the folks that have higher paid wages. As this has evolved from 03 forward, you know, you, you mentioned 06, there was also uh, TD 911 in, in 2009. Then you have the 2014 regulations in 2014, the PATH Act in 2016, um, uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, now the inflation bill. Really, what, what's happened is the last two decades, Congress has, has really showed a spirit of improving and enhancing this incentive, right? everything has been taxpayer friendly and it's really been with this, the spirit of Congress is trying to get this in the hands of more and more businesses. 
um, you know, we're, we're looking at how do you encourage more companies to claim this. When you look at this incentive as a whole, where it works, so Carl, like you said, there's three types of expenses that you can generally capture. The wages of your employees, the raw materials used to uh, or used in custom fabricated components, manufactured parts, prototypes. Uh, there's a lot of nuance around the, the raw materials piece. And then also third-party contractors. The industries that primarily are uh, you know, the, the target or the sweet spot of this are really going to be your engineering, your architecture, your manufacturing, your fabrication, um, construction, and then you know, get into software and technology, obviously, right? Some of the, the, the new um, applications that are being developed. Or you know, when you look at software and technology, this is what's interesting. It's starting to permeate every industry, right? You know, yep. we're, we're talking to um, a, a grocery store right now that has started to try and make all of their, uh, they're trying to add in a delivery service as part of their company. They're, they don't want to outsource the delivery. They want to actually make that part of their own business. And so they're putting their inventory online. So they're developing a website and an inventory system where they can track all their inventory and allow for it to communicate across different pieces of their business. I mean, never in my life would I would have thought that a grocery store would qualify for the R&D credit, but now because software is becoming you know, so prevalent in different companies, that is starting to be uh, something that we look at across the board. Um, but then you also have, you know, your oil and gas businesses. You also have agriculture. Um, you know, agriculture is one that's that's very commonly missed. Uh, but agriculture, really, ag as an industry is one that is constantly looking at new oh, yeah. things. Right? Uh, we've got to feed tomorrow's population. So you know, farmers, feed yards, dairies, pork, poultry, um, across the board, they're tremendous opportunities. There's actually a lot of, a lot of poultry in, in Alabama. Um, we've had a lot of success with, uh, poultry operations, egg layers, groups like that. It's been, uh, been very successful in that space. But what this incentive allows you to do is that if you have different initiatives within your company, right. And, and for an architect or an engineer, for example, that initiative may be a customer driven project. Someone may hire you to say, I would like to design a building. I need your help in designing this. So for an architect engineer, their initiative is their customer's request. Yep. For a, um, you know, a software company, their initiative may be, I want to develop a new app or I want to uh, add this new functionality. For you know, other businesses, it really can be any number of things. It can either be externally driven or internally driven in either case. But if you have an initiative for your company where you're going through and, and uh, putting an effort to try and come up with these solutions, what this incentive allows you to do is it allows you to convert the expenses incurred by your business for that work from deductions to dollar for dollar tax credits. So you can actually reclassify a piece of the expense to an asset that's really three to five times more powerful. So you, you think of for every dollar spent, instead of getting you know 20 to 30 cents back, um, you can end up getting the full dollar back. So the mechanic of it from a tax perspective is, is fairly powerful. Um, you know, when we start getting into to industries here, uh, you know, architects and engineers are ones that I, I'd say we see very often that are uh, maybe somewhat familiar with this, but a lot of times have misconceptions. Um, and I think one of the biggest misconceptions when we look at the R&D credit across the board, not just in those, those industries, but across the board, 
people are allowed to get paid for their work. Um, that that is absolutely something that you can do in a lot of industries. That's the driver of this incentive is is work performed on behalf of customers. Um, there was actually a very, very small company out of Fort Worth, Texas called Lockheed Martin uh, that was getting paid by the government. <laughs> and yeah. uh, they they captured a, an R&D tax credit based on their work where they were getting paid for every single um, job they did. And they captured a credit for work where they got paid for every single hour spent. Um, what Congress has said is that it doesn't matter if you're paid. You know, there are some additional stipulations and evaluations that have to go into it. But just because someone is compensated for the work absolutely does not mean that they can't qualify. So, you know, there's there's been a, a lot of changes and a lot of iterations uh, to this. One of the the, the newest iterations, um, when we look at the inflation bill, it's talking about startup businesses. So, you know, when we look at what, what's what's happened, right, we're trying to encourage a lot of um, capital expense here in the U.S., in 2016, with the PATH Act, um, Carl, you mentioned the reduction of alt-men or the elimination of alt-men for businesses less than $50 million in revenue, and then also the fact that the R&D credit became permanent. But what it also did is it created a startup provision. The startup provision is the first time that the R&D tax credit has been able to offset anything but income tax, and it was able to offset payroll tax. Very big for startups, right? You look at software companies, life sciences, pharma, Right, industries that historically have had heavy spin before they actually have profits had not been able to use the R&D credit. Now they can. One of the stipulations was you could only generate up to $250,000 a year to offset payroll taxes. Well, now, um, as of the inflation bill in 2022 moving forward, you can now offset $500,000 per year. And you have a five-year window so you effectively just added the opportunity for another $1.25 million in refundable credits. I mean, you know, this goes against payroll tax. Payroll taxes, it's an yeah. asset for 20 years. So um, you really added up to $1.25 million in capital back to you know, some of these people who are in the, the startup phase. Um, so you know, there, there really is a, a lot of confidence and certainty around this, uh, this incentive, how it works and who it applies to. The expansions have been pretty significant, <laughs> right? Yeah. But uh, the focus of this very much is about rewarding technical jobs and, and helping businesses to create job growth here stateside. So, Tyler, let's let's take a manufacturer, for example, that has a uh, a line where they're taking raw material in one end and spitting out finished product on the other end, mm -hmm. and they're trying to make that line more efficient or that flow more efficient. Kind of walk Absolutely. us through that example, because we see that a lot sure. in, in our clients, uh, just how they need to document what they're doing so that you can capture those costs and, and take advantage of these credits. Great, great comment, Carl. So a um, couple things. So number one, when we look at manufacturing, I always like to break it up into two different types, right? There's your job shop custom manufacturers, and then yep. you have your um, your mass production product manufacturers. For a job shop, you know, custom manufacturer, basically from the time that you get the part in house, where you know, assuming it's a custom part, something you guys have never done before. From the time that that goes in-house, generally we'll go to a detailer. The detailer will take the information, figure out how we're going to get the cut sheets, who's going to actually build it, goes to a, um, 
you know, shop foreman to actually lay the work out. Then it's ultimately assembled on the back end. All of those facets of this can qualify. So it, it, it is more prevalent than just the person doing the design. Even if someone gives you a design and you are figuring out the process, like you mentioned earlier, how are we going to create this or how are we going to take this part from a piece of paper to a physical reality? What steps do we need to take along the line? The people that are spending the time understanding what are those steps to take and what's going to be the most efficient or the best route, that can, can qualify as well. So design isn't the only way to qualify. It is one, but for manufacturers, process is, is our most common qualification. On the other side of this, where we start talking about product manufacturers, where you have your own product, right? And you're, you're mass producing for goods and you have this assembly line you were referencing, where we're looking at that is basically what steps or what evaluations are you making to optimize the efficiency, evaluate throughput? How do you reduce scrap? Is there anything that you can do to make that manufacturing line more efficient from a, a time or a flow perspective? If you look at the alignment of your shop, right? You know, generally we, we look at kind of from a material handling perspective, where does material come in? How do you make it flow as effectively as possible? If you're if you have an established process and you're doing the exact same process time in, time out, and you make no changes, not really the incentive that you're looking for. However, I am yet to meet many manufacturers that are that just say, we've got this good, we're done, we're never going to touch it again. I mean, kind of the nature of the business is how do we improve this? How do we make this more efficient? If we're at a 3% scrap rate, how do we get it down to 2%? How do we get to 1.5%? Right? How do we try and optimize this? If we're scrapping 13% of our material that we're laying out, what can we do to scrap 9%? Right? That, those, these types of evaluations where people are looking at what do we buy? How do we supplement our process? How do we build our flow? How do we reduce our time? All these different evaluations, even on existing products, that time by people and then testing, right? You know, if you say, I think that if we do it this way, it's going to be more efficient. You don't know until you test it, right? right and so right. that's where you you'd have mentioned initially, Carl, about the wages, right? The wages of people. Well, historically, that was the simpler methodology was to right. only look at the wages. But in 2014, there was the, the change in the uh, Section 174 regulations, which defined supply costs that are eligible for the R&D credit. Since 2014, there's been a huge expansion in the amount of materials that can be captured. Mm -hmm. We have a, a lot of companies in manufacturing, fabrication, uh, um, you know, these heavy material industries where their credits doubled or tripled overnight when this regulation passed because now... When we talk about that example where you have a manufacturing line, if you're testing a new line, if you're testing how this works, the material that you're using to evaluate if that new process is effective, that's potentially capturable. So when you're dealing with steel products or steel goods, titanium and some aerospace applications or government applications, when you start getting into these high dollar goods that you're having to run through this manufacturing line to evaluate the efficacy of the process, you start to get an expansion yeah. of costs that are eligible. And obviously the expansion of costs could lead to more credits. Yeah. So Tyler walk us through and I'm not trying to. <laughs> you may be asking the same question uh, I was thinking. Hog the show here, but uh, let's say you have a manufacturer that has uh, 10 projects that they worked on throughout the year mm -hmm. to try to improve that process, reduce scrap, uh, whatever. 
and they had uh, a million dollars in wages and half a million dollars in supplies or subcontractors that they could show were spent on those projects. How does the credit, walk us through just how the calculation of the credit works in that example. So there's, uh, you mentioned the 2006 adjustment for the alternative simplified credit. Basically there's two methodologies that you can use to calculate a credit. The theoretical maximum that you can get on a per dollar spend is about 14%. That is the theoretical maximum. You can get 14 cents back on every dollar that you spend in terms of the R&D credit. I can tell you in the 10 plus years I've been doing this uh, this type of work, I've never seen someone get 14%, yeah. right? The most common example is when you look at the type of analysis, there's a, a three-year comparison where you look back three years or you compare back more to the start of the business. In either case, what you end up doing is you put your expenses into um, your current year evaluation. You compare that with what you've done in prior years. And then the result is that on most businesses, you end up with about six to eight cents back on the dollar. So for someone who's spending you know a million dollars in wages, uh, and let's use the example of pre-2014 and post-2014, because this yep. is a, a fairly good example. Pre-2014, you had a million dollars in wages, that's going to give you between you know sixty and eighty thousand dollars. Yep. Now, one of the exciting things about this is it's not that you can just do this one year. You can actually go back up to three years at one time, so you can do four years at once. So that business now is generating sixty eighty thousand dollars. When you do four years at once, that means you're talking about between a two hundred and fifty and almost a three hundred fifty thousand dollar cash injection back to the business. Now let's take it post two thousand and fourteen. Right where you mentioned a uh, the the five hundred thousand of supplies, that's another thirty to forty thousand dollars of credits per year. So now this business that was getting two fifty to three fifty, now you're talking three fifty to five hundred, three fifty to six hundred thousand in credits because the supply aspect can be captured. So on a per year basis, you know six to eight cents back on the dollar, one point five million. Uh, you're talking 90 to yep. 140 on a four-year basis. You're almost 400 to 600,000 in potential credits, but that's not where this ends, right? This is now a permanent piece of the tax code. So you say right. that almost hundred thousand dollars, that's bottom line every year, right? Cause you can do this in perpetuity. And so for business owners, when you look at kind of tax planning strategies, you have the ability to recoup cash from taxes already paid in prior years, but on a go forward basis, you know, we have clients we've been working on for 15, 20 plus years now where it's just, it's part of their every year strategy. If you have taxes paid, you use this incentive, you reduce your taxes owed, that's additional capital, additional cash for the business. Yeah. We have a lot of mutual clients that, uh, sure. that we've done that, that you yeah, all, we, I think we have we some clients every year, for, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's right. And, and you can start monetizing it as soon as, you know, April of the year prior, because when you start talking about making estimated tax payments, yep. you know, when you have a pretty good idea of what you you're doing or how your business is working, you can immediately start saving um, cash as early as April of the, the year prior um, to, to the tax deadline. I mean, it really can be something where you can add cash to a business very, very quickly with this. Yeah, and I guess that first year you were talking about where you can go back three, Rachel, you gotta you gotta beat the statute 
That's right. Expiring on that third. Got to watch your dates. Right? That's yes. Right. And that's always the one we work on first. First. <laughs> right? Or y'all work on first, right, Tyler? Yeah, we call them the bookend years. Yeah, yeah, they're called the bookends, right? You have the, so the, the most upcoming year, year and the third year. Current right. year and last year, right? The the last year, as you guys said, statutory. You do not want to let that go. Mm -hmm. um, whatever is your statutory year, as soon as that deadline passes, those credits are lost for forever. Yep. That is a really sad day, right? You don't want to let those credits go. But the other side of it is on a current year, that's immediate cash, right? If you had expected to pay $150,000 of taxes and you get 100,000 of credits, you only owe 50. That's $100,000 immediately saved. So, you know, for for you guys, I think uh having those credits and telling your client, "Hey, you actually are going to have to write a much smaller check." That's a much better conversation to have. Much, that's much a good better. Day. Yeah, much better conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, you got anything? I do. What from a practical standpoint, could someone expect if they thought their business qualified, what would they need to be doing on their internal bookkeeping systems to be ready to provide the information to calculate this credit? Yeah, to kind of make dollars, make their job a, right. little, what, a little easier. What are they going to be asked for, I guess? Great question. So let me first start with this. Going into 2001, right, when we talk about the early 80s through the early 2000s, the expectation and the standard by the IRS was not only that you had a patent, but also that you had contemporaneous record keeping for that patent. Mm -hmm. So let's play that out, right? Sitting here today in 2022, how many of your, your manufacturers have contemporaneous time tracking? Probably none, right? Almost none are going to track minute by minute, hour by hour, what their employers do because they don't need to. That's not that's not a, a relevant right. piece of information for them to effectively run their business. So what's happened is that's right. right. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys would love that, but they uh, they don't necessarily always do that. But what's happened is you know Congress has has moved this further and further away from any of these very very strict regulations that say you must have this, you must have that. There's absolutely no type of absolute standard today of what documentation is required. Generally speaking, um, what the IRS has said is that the best way to go about this methodology is a project-based approach. They want to look at what activities are you doing, what jobs are you taking on. So some type of project-based accounting system or, or job costing system, those are generally the studies where we have not only the, uh, the easiest results in terms of process, but also the best um, because when you have material expenses or when you have contractor expenses, if you just have those expenses out in the ether, mm -hmm. you can't tie them back to a job. It's really hard to allocate that type of an expense to something that is specifically defined for this incentive. But if you have job costing, if you have project-based expensing, being able to allocate those expenses to jobs, not only is that you know, good from a process perspective, but also from a results perspective, because now you're looking at being able to L or be able to generate more type of uh, costs on a per job basis. So I, I don't want to say that if you don't have you know job level costing that you can't qualify, you absolutely still can. It just may be that you know if you in prior years if you don't have it, maybe it's a wages only incentive. But then when you start do countering, uh, accounting for materials on a per job basis, maybe then your credit can start increasing as years go forward. So I wouldn't say it's a yes or no in terms of qualification. It's probably more of a magnitude of qualification based on 
you know, how you keep information and, and how you track things. When we work with pig farms, yep. trust me, their level of, of job costing, not great, <laughs> right? Yeah. There are uh, certainly uh, things left to be desired there in a lot of cases, but uh, you know, it, whatever clients have, whatever systems they use, you know, certainly if you're, if you're keeping accurate business records, there's likely enough to generate a credit. It just may be that as the process goes along and as we're able to educate people on what we're looking for, they may be able to make small tweaks here or there that could end up increasing their credit for future years. That makes sense. So you could start somewhere and then as you learn, you could improve your record keeping yeah. for future years. Yeah, that makes absolutely. Sense. Tyler, is there a, when you're looking at a new company, is, is there kind of a level of wages or revenue or some other measure where you say, you know, I'm not sure that you have enough mm -hmm. or would have enough expenses to make the study worth its while, if you will? Uh, that's a great I mean, question. Um, I, like I would there say used that, to be some, some numbers we would talk about when we were. Yeah, I, I think that it's evolved a little bit, yeah. uh, Carl, yeah. with now with the startup credit being put in yeah, and yeah. kind of a, a push for eligibility by small businesses. One of the biggest limiters in the past was you mentioned Altman. I mean, that yep. was a huge limiter for businesses yep. uh, leading up to that. I mean, uh, for folks who are not incredibly tax savvy, Altman is a tax provision that basically says, you know, even if you can use credits, to take your tax below a certain level, this is the least Congress will pay or the least IRS will take. That was a limiter on nine out of every 10 businesses we talked to. You know, we started in 2001 from 01 to 2015, nine out of 10 companies had some type of limitation with all men. So that was huge for businesses. Um, the startup provision has expanded this. What I would say, Carl, is, is instead of thinking it from, you know, is there a certain threshold? What we generally do is we do some type of um, an initial consultation, right? Yep. We'll do an initial yep. discussion with someone and we'll say, look, based on what you're telling me, probably the most realistic outcome is A to B in terms of credits, right? Yep. On a per yep. year basis. In a lot of cases, you know what we'll say is, "Hey, you can generate ten to fifteen thousand per year in credits. Right? Is right. that worth your time? Right? right? We, I, I've got a, a client in house right now that for seven years we've delivered them seven thousand dollars, and to them that is great. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. love getting that seven thousand dollars, and and the study is worth the time for them, and um, you know it it all works for others. You know, I've had a business owner before tell if I can't make $150,000, I'm not going to do it regardless if I can get 100. I need 150 or else it's not worth it. Beauty is really in the eye of the beholder. So what we generally do is do a quick conversation, generally about 15 or 20 minutes where we can understand a little bit about the facts of the business, yep. some of the yep. expenses, what may qualify, and then let them know we would expect you to be A to B. Is that worth your time? Yeah. And, and we've had clients that didn't think it was worth their time or... or mm -hmm. Not the management's time, but his his staff. Uh, Absolutely, like you know, y'all are going to be bothering my people trying to get information <laughs> to document, and uh, I don't want them going through that. Turns right. out we convinced them otherwise, and it's been a great deal for for them uh, <laughs> yeah. every year. But, yeah, I think I think a lot of people like think think that we're going to be sitting on their manufacturing floor pulling yeah, their yeah. shop form in you know, yeah. three hours a week for a year. Yeah. That's not the case, yeah. right? Most of our, most of our clients for a first year study, I'd say, you know, obviously size and scale matters, but 
Um, in general, if you say 15 to 20, maybe 15 to 25 hours collectively across a business, that's generally pretty common in terms of the time spent to, to work with us on one of these. You, know, you think it's about a third of that's going to be your financial team gathering payroll, job titles, tax returns. About a third is going to be pulling operational data, purchase orders, contracts, job reports. And then about a third will be operational interviews. So, you know, it's it's a healthy blend of different departments, but no, we're certainly not sitting on the shop floor telling the shop foreman, uh-uh, don't do your job, come talk to us. That That's not how we really operate here. Yeah, and and I would think that as you go through a client in your, in your fifth year, sixth year, seventh year doing it, their mindset changes so, right. such that they, they start thinking, okay, R&D. They get better at what they do internally to help you uh, calculate it. That's think. what I would yeah, say too. Yeah. I, I would say with everything, right. You know, when you hire someone to come in and work with you guys, I'm, I'm sure even in, in your guys's practice, right. Your first year is the most difficult because yeah. you've got to learn someone's business practices. You got to learn how they track things. Right. You got to understand how they operate. It's no different for us. You know, the, the R and D credit, I like to say it's a story of numbers, you know, that you, you basically have to tell the story of the business through numbers. Yep. It's kind of how yep. it ultimately shakes out. Yep. So, you know, we're trying to understand the business to tell the story through the numbers. Well, year by year, if the business doesn't drastically change, then we get much better at you know, understanding what information yep. we need to detail that year of the business via the numbers. So, yeah, I mean, we have some clients that I'd say by year three, you pretty well get to this is exactly where we're at. The first year is the learning curve. The second year is, I'm not going to call it a 50% reduction in time, but it's certainly pretty drastic. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. year three, by year three, I mean, we've got clients that pretty well in you know five to seven hours yeah. can get a, a whole project done. You know, yeah. They know exactly what they're sending us. They compile it, send it over. We build our model. We do a couple interviews and we're out the door. Yep. Yep. Maybe helpful to look at that first year is more of an investment for the future years instead That's of right. just a cost for that one year. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Rachel, you got anything? He he has covered everything I had. Tyler, you've done that. a great yeah. job. Any, any last thoughts or if we have someone that's interested in seeing whether their business might qualify for uh, R&D credits? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are, so a line group, we are here to serve, right? We, we work with um, JMF and we've had a tremendous relationship with you guys for years. Yep. Um, basically, if, if anyone is interested in learning if they could qualify, we do gratis assessments for, for clients to understand what may be out there. Um, you know, we'd be happy to take a 15, 20 minute phone call, learn yep. what your, your business may be entitled to, how it would fit in. You know, we want to go through ownership, structure, tax, um, operations, all of it. That's the reason why we, we really love working with great CPAs like, um, you know, Carl and, and uh, Rachel, because at the end of the day, you know, accountants are, are very helpful in, yep. in understanding how this will work and making sure the timing is right. Uh, but our firm Align Group, we've been in business for 20 years. We've, uh, you know, delivered about 17 billion in tax benefits. Uh, and we, you know, live to serve clients and CPA. So if there's anything yep. we can do to help out, we'd be very, very helpful to talk with anyone and see if there's an opportunity. Uh, one other thing I would mention is, you know, for people who, I think some folks, there was a, a bit of a push on the R&D credit back in the 2012, 2013 timeframe. A lot of companies heard about it back then yep. and started a program. 
if your credits have not increased pretty substantially through the years with all the iterations and the changes, if your credits have been fairly consistent, it would be a very good time to revisit. Um, just because there have been so many recent changes, there have been so many iterations of how this works. For people who have an existing program, we also look at if there's ways to optimize or yep. improve existing programs with some of the recent changes. So even if you have been claiming, it's never never hurts to get a second opinion and see if there may be some dollars left on the table. So yep. um, Carl, Rachel, certainly appreciate you guys having us on today. Very much appreciate being able to uh, to share the gospel of the R&D tax credit. <laughs> yeah, well, no, we <laughs> really you. Appreciate, appreciate you being here. And Rachel, you, you too. Uh, our firms, like you said, we've worked together for a long time and continue a good relationship. So it's been good for us, good for uh, good for a lot, and good for our clients mainly. Uh, good for eight, clients eight, for 8. sure. Eight point six million, I think, was the last number, and that's kind of like y'all's. It's just a ticker; it just keeps ticking as we that's do right. every year. So that's right. We appreciate it, and thanks for our relationship. And thanks for being absolutely. Here today. We we appreciate the partnership, and once again, thank you guys for trusting us with your clients. That certainly is the it's the highest level of honor that you can bestow upon us. Well, thanks, Tyler. Thank thanks. Thank you, folks. Great talking with you both. Thanks. thanks. You too. Talk Bye-bye. to you soon. If you would like JMF to help you connect with the Alliant Group, help your business in any way, or if you'd like to suggest additional podcast topics, simply send an email to info at jmf.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on YouTube or your favorite audio podcast app. If you would like us to help your business or would like to suggest additional podcast topics, Simply send an email to info at jmf.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on YouTube and your favorite audio podcast apps.